Welcome to This is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prying. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, and expanding the public sphere. On today's program, we're going to continue our look back at more excerpts from programs from 2021. In our first segment, we'll hear from two organizers with MCU's Juvenile Justice Task Force, Carmon Leach and Latricia Gandhi, about using the tool of participatory defense when children are caught up in the juvenile court system. Both Carmon and Latricia are mothers who have walked that path and now support other families to protect their children. I look at it as um, support given to, um, to, to parents helps give them a deeper understanding of the process by letting them know what to expect from each stage. Um, we offer our support through suggestions on preparing meetings um, with the attorneys, court dates, and other steps throughout the process. Um, in the participatory defense, we just, we support you. We, we're not lawyers or anything of that. We are community people who have children that has faced the court system and, and we felt alone. And we, we don't want other parents or, or guardians to feel that pressure when you don't understand the law, you don't understand the language. Um, and once you understand that, you want to actually help support other people to do that. Latricia was the the lead organizer at the time when I came in. So she's the one that kind of um, supported me through the system at that time. That, that was the person who I called to, my go-to. It was a relief to be in a place where people not only understood what you were going through, but were not there to judge. And so for me, that 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 would be my biggest takeaway from it at the, the process and which which is what makes it so real and something that if people know what really goes on in that space, I think they would be more open to joining that space. So what are some of the steps that families and communities uh, go through in participatory defense? You know, what's what's the process once someone arrives the first time? What what do they do? It's not a formal process. It's more so, you know, once the parent come out and, and attends for one of the meetings from that meeting, what we gather in that meeting is what support do you need so that you're not walking this process alone? What can we do? One of the things we do help, we do support the families to do in participatory defense, create a social bio. And people say, what is a social bio? A social bio is, 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 is a binder of letters, pictures, um, any volunteer hours that your child has, has done in the community to tell that story visually. Um, that's one step that, that the, that the uh, families go through. The other steps are, you know, we listen, we listen. We don't go into the meetings talking. We sit back and listen to the parent and what the parent thinks is best for their child. That's their space. You know, that's not our space. That's their space 
tell their story. Um, again, she said debrief any anything that you need um, support with. If you sometimes family members are trying to write letters and 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 written statements, and they need that type of support. So we are there to give them that. We are there to give them that support. Um, you know, some of them meet with public defenders, or they have a court hearing coming up, and they don't understand what the court hearing is even about. You know, so we are able to help them go through that information and kind of decipher what they're going to face um, and like different obstacles. You know, we provide the families with a packet, um, a, a, a juvenile judicial packet that, you know, if they don't get it from the court system or their public defenders, we hand it to them and it just gives them the process like the St. Louis County Juvenile, a guide for parents. You know, so we give them these informations. We give them a pamphlet about knowing your rights and things of that nature. That way they have some information in front of them um, instead of going in there alone and not knowing anything. So what's the difference when when uh, a family comes to court with participatory defense at their back? It definitely changed it um, in my case. <laughs> um, we got that social bio um, out and I think the um, the judge the lawyers, them being able to look at that, they were able to see not. So this wasn't just me saying this is what my son does. He's accomplished this and that. I, I, we actually put it so that they can see it and actually get a glimpse into the life of my of my child. In my eyes, the system is set up to be, OK, these are the guidelines that we go down. And does he fit in there? OK, now when I, now that I'm showing you something other than what they said he was, I think it gives you they're able to make a decision to me about a kid. I think to go in, going by yourself is to not be protected if to. I look at it the way that when I'm talking to a parent, I tell them, if you want to be, how, how much protection do you want your child to have? So if I know that these people, if I go with these people over here, they're going to steer me, be, they're going to steer me through experience, not something that they were told, but they've actually walked this walk. This is who I want in my corner, opposed to, no, I, I, I'm, I'm going to work this by myself. I can figure this out. So uh, let's talk about the the weekly defense hub. Um, what is it, and and um, uh, what what happens at the meetings? Some parents get to that process and they give up because they feel they're alone. It's too much work. This Tuesday night meeting is come as you are. We've been there before. We're going to support you, and please, we're going to support you to not give up on your child while you're going through this process. And that's what that Tuesday night meeting is about. And if families are looking to come into that Tuesday night meeting space or know of someone, text hashtag love youth to 31996. Either myself or Carmine will reach out within the next 24 hours. Um, they can call the MCU um, office personally. And that number is 314-367-3484. And that information will get sent to either Carmine or myself for us to reach out to that family and invite them into that space, give them the information to that space. That's 31996. And you want to text hashtag love youth. 
In our second section, we hear from DeMarco Davidson, lead organizer of the MCU Sacred Votes campaign, about MCU's Transformative Conversations initiative that is designed to hear people's needs and empower them to initiate change. Yes, so I like to say that a transformative conversation is a mix between having a one-on-one with somebody and a listening campaign. Uh, When I say a one-on-one, it's an intentional relationship building listening campaign. So that's a lot to say. (laughs) Uh, So we just say transformative conversation. And uh, I also like to think of it as a way to reveal uh, what people might be thinking or to get them to think about things that they've never thought about. Uh, If there is an ultimate goal of a transformative conversation, it is to hear people say, wow, I've never thought about that. Or wow, somebody has never asked me that question before. And now, that, and, and now that you've asked me that, you got me thinking. Who are we talking to in these transformative conversations? How many people are we looking to talk to? And this go around, uh, we actually are focusing on what we call the break the pipeline zip codes. And for those who are, who are not familiar with break the pipeline, that is short for also breaking the school to prison pipeline. And when we say a, a break the pipeline zip code, we are referring to zip codes that have a high juvenile detention referral rate. Uh, but the 63136, for example, is one of the main zip codes we focusing on and, t- and focusing on this go around. So why are we having these conversations now? What are we, what's important about 2021? And it sounds like there are a couple of different goals that sort of relate to each other. One, we're looking for information. So what are we looking for? And yes. two, we're also trying to motivate. And, and talk to about how those relate to each other. What we're focusing on now in 2021 is we are specifically looking to hear how people in St. Louis City and St. Louis County have a un, to see where their understanding is when it comes to their personal uh, ability to make changes and or hold people accountable who do have the ability to make changes that they want to, that they want to see in their community uh, in the region, but then also in the state. Uh, and if I could, you know, share briefly, uh, one, of the, one of the first questions is, what do you, would you like to see change in the next two years in your community? So we actually are being specific uh, with the hopes that we have enough responses from people uh, to get a, a, good, a good enough understanding of what issues to cut, what, what programs should we be working towards, uh, what voting initiatives should we be pushing or should we be working to organize with other groups to bring to St. Louis City and St. Louis County? So it sounds like we we want to make sure any issues we're working on are actually what people are interested in. It, yes. It's sort of yes. taking the pulse of the, of, of the public then. Exactly. Exactly. So we want that pulse, like to raise that pulse up uh, to get people to take action. Uh, and so after I, after we asked the question, uh, who would you like to see changing in, in, in the next two years? We immediately asked the question, how realistic do you think that change can happen? Because the people who say, oh, yeah, I want to see changes, but I don't think it's possible. Uh, the, the chances of them joining any organization or the chances of them taking any action is close to none. <laughs> it's, it's very close to none. But then we say, when people say, oh, yeah, it's possible. I think it's possible. And then we immediately ask question number three. Like these are questions number one, two, and three. (laughs) 
we immediately ask, who do you think is responsible for that change? And that creates an entirely different conversation. At least probably 25% of them say, we want more things for youth, more, more things for kids. And then we ask them who's responsible. We get blank stares. We get blank faces. We get I don't knows. So everybody wants something for children. Everybody wants more stuff for kids. But don't nobody know who to hold accountable or to how to even make that change happen. So even just even just seeing that and noticing that has already been made, making a huge difference. I always say, you know, it's, it's one thing to to recognize a problem. This is also to recognize who's responsible, <laughs> who's who's actually supposed to bring this bring a solution. All, all of our communities in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, all of them do have, uh, even the unincorporated areas, they have a state rep, they have a state senator, they have a mayor or a county exec, they have people who should be working towards their benefit uh, and therefore not just allow people to allow communities to just feel like they are, are community individuals, actually be feel like they're part of a community. Our next segment is an interview with Reverend Dr. Cassandra Gould, the Executive Director of Missouri Faith Voices. Dr. Gould was a keynote speaker at the Mothering the Earth Social Justice Symposium in May. She talked with us about environmental racism in the St. Louis region. Uh, so I am reminded of uh, scripture. Um, Psalm uh, 24 says the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, everything in it, all who live in it. And so for me, uh, environmental justice um, is uh, a part of being a, a good steward of what God has given us. Uh, it means that we actually have the opportunity and the privilege. God trusted us enough to uh, maintain and sustain the earth, uh, not just as a, a location, not just as uh, the place that we live and breathe, but that is also important, but to maintain it for our neighbors, for all of God's children. And, and so to follow up on that, what would you include in the environment? That means that we're not just talking about it uh, in theoretical ways, right? But we're talking about the spaces that uh, the most vulnerable people have to occupy. We're talking about neighborhoods. We're talking about the places that they lay their heads and the air that they have access to. We're talking about the green space that people have access to. And so it is uh, much more tangible. So it is um, not just like how we're keeping our lawns or not merely uh, if you are choosing paper or plastic, not merely if you're deciding to recycle or not to recycle. It is about how you are treating the inhabitants. The, the reason that I chose that scripture it's, it's not just talking about where we live, but it's also talking about who lives here. And so how are we treating the inhabitants of particular parts of the world, particular zip codes, particular neighborhoods? Uh, let's focus a little bit more on this idea of environmental racism. Define this for us and, and give us some examples. If God's um, environment, God's idea of ecology is that um, the world belongs to God, all of the people belongs to God. So all of us are to have this kind of equal access to the fullness of the world, the fullness of the, of the earth, the safety of the earth. And environmental racism is a byproduct of uh, white supremacy. It's a byproduct 
of this fraudulent notion of human hierarchy. Um, this notion that says not all of God's children are eligible for a safe environment. Not all of God's children are legitimate. Not all of God's children actually deserve to have their humanity, their life sustained in a quality way. So some of God's children can be subjected to really um, evil toxins that live in their neighborhood. Some of God's children can be subjected to decisions or made by people who would not dare step foot in their neighborhood, but would choose to have their neighborhoods as a site of uh, toxic uh, waste dumps. Some of God's children are not human enough. And, and particularly in America, it goes back as an African-American woman, I can't disconnect it uh, from the fact that my ancestors were legislatively deemed not to be fully human. And we've been fighting against that ever since. And so it also manifests itself in the environment, not a natural occurrence, not a holy occurrence, but an unholy occurrence where some of God's children are subjected to literally being dumped on. And are there some specific examples how this plays out in a, in a day-to-day environment where for families, for children? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in St. Louis, there's something called uh, Cold Water Creek um, right outside of uh, the city limits. Uh, Cold Water uh, Creek has um, been a kind of a dump site, right? It has been a place where uh, radium and et cetera has been released um, into uh, the water. So there is a disproportionate number of people that um, have suffered uh, from uh, cancer diagnosis. Um, Many of them uh, have been African-American. If you are on Grand uh, near uh, my uh, my old home church, my my uh, neighborhood that I grew up in near my grandparents' house where the old Bush Stadium used to be, um, there is uh, a building that was a Carter uh, carburetor. Uh, I'm old enough that I remember when it was a very vibrant uh, factory um, and it was closed. And next to Carter Carburetor is Herbert Hoover Boys Club. And um, studies show that because they made carburetors there and God only knows what kind of chemicals and et cetera uh, were used in that plant, um, that basically it was a toxic waste site. It is in North St. Louis. Um, The average child who goes to Herbert Hoover Boys Club uh, where my little brothers uh, played and participated in sports and even my son uh, participated in sports is a black child. Um, That site would have never been left unattended years after being closed next to a a children's facility, a children's recreational facility in South St. Louis would not have been a factor at all. So those are like living examples of what we face, particularly in uh, black communities uh, across the country but bring it home in St. Louis. In our final segment, we continue the discussion of environmental justice with Sister Dolores Sanchez, Beth Gutzler, and Emmeline Giles. 
environmental justice organizers for MCU. We, we talk a lot about uh, environmentalism in, in the news. We hear about those things. But for you, what is environmental justice? Well, I, I would say that uh, environmental justice is everybody having access uh, to um, safe uh, and sta- sustainable sources of uh, healthy food, of good water, housing, neighborhoods, jobs. Environmental justice to me is um, no area would be considered a disposable area. No group of people would be a considered a disposable people. So that's how I really connect um, the environmental aspect to social justice. So another phrase that I think is important and, and carries, I think, an important uh, definition to it is environmental racism. So how, how would you define that um, as either similar to, connected to, or even uh, different than just environmental justice? When you start to look at things that are put into place um, that affect the environment, there starts to be a systematic um, way that injustices are done. So it connects in the idea that there are systematic problems that are racist connected. Um, And the reality is that that has to be viewed as an impact on those people. And that these systems um, of the where we put um, our actual landfills, where we redo the pipes and where we actually put nuclear waste is related to what area people are seen as less of a value. I was thinking about what Beth said that, um, you know, some of these, some of these uh, environmental issues, you're not going to find them in the affluent communities. Um, those communities would, would, you know, be up in arms and have economic power, social power to um, make sure that they don't uh, happen in their neighborhoods. Um, and people in the poorer neighborhoods um, don't have that kind of voice. And that's where I think our work comes in. So that this environmental racism, uh, you know, we can you know, have impacted people impact the policies that, that uh, let this happen. And do you have any examples to give of, of what this looks like on a, on a practical level? Well, I know we've been talking about um, uh, air quality and particularly in the neighborhoods around the river. And um, you know, those neighborhoods are majorly uh, black and brown and uh, immigrant refugees. Uh, and certainly they're impacted by the poor air quality, combination of, of uh, major highways that are, were put there, um, uh, businesses or factories, uh, refineries along the river, um, just a lot of factors there um, that I would call environmental racism. So talk about how, how, this, how um, activities like this affect the entire life of of the neighborhoods of the people in them. And it's not just uh, a little bit of air pollution, I can't breathe today, but it, then that has a ripple effect on the rest of the quality of life um, for, for people that are affected. Just thinking of, um, you know, air and water, the, uh, in these impacted areas, the rates of asthma are really high. 
And so the kids, uh, the kids who are, you know, suffering from asthma, they miss a lot of school. So, you know, you end up with kids that are, you know, falling behind in education um, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm close to a family where they, they had to move because there, there was uh, the kids level of lead in their blood uh, was, was too high. And, you know, whether that comes from uh, the paint or the water pipes, um, you know, again, you know, that uh, lead leads to, um, you know, damages the brain. And so, you know, these are definite impacts that have, you know, big uh, impacts wide impacts. So in your positions, um, and, and I should say, uh, Sister Dolores and Beth are, are joining MCU and have, have joined at, at the beginning of this year. Um, what, are, what are some of the goals or what, what are you looking to achieve in, in, in the coming months and, and years? So one of the things that we'd like to see is that there are more groups within congregations that are focused on environmental justice. So in the next two to three years specifically, just increasing awareness, doing this connecting between environmental justice and social justice, and setting a foundation for being able to work on policy change that might actually help impacted communities is a very large goal, but it's realistic in the type of work that MCU does. And uh, Beth has been on the ground for uh, for a year, uh, more than a year, uh, and working with uh, uh, mostly Catholic parishes. And so I've joined her in that effort uh, to build up, uh, particularly in South City, where I had been working previously, and uh, um, also among the Hispanic community, uh, since I am a Latina and, and speak Spanish. Um, and they're part of the definitely part of the impacted uh, folks building up teams in in uh, within the Hispanic as well as the uh, English speaking um, churches and organizations in uh, South City is kind of my focus. Thank you for taking a look back at more of our discussions from 2021. If you are ready to join us in the work for justice in the St. Louis area, contact us at 314-367-3484 or office at mcustl.com. You can learn more about and contribute to Metropolitan Congregations United on our website, mcustlewis.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.